When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of Dive Cuts. This is Rockin' Radio. I am your host, Sam Snelling. As you can see, uh, it's just me by myself right now. Uh, That is because uh, here shortly we're going to be talking to uh, data analytics people. Um, So uh, as a continuing part of like this little interview series as we're kind of making our way through the the off-season, um, it is now like the middle of August. Uh, football season is bearing down. You've been able to watch your uh, before the box score episodes and, and get all, all of that done. And you, now you want a fix of college basketball. Well, here I am, and we're going to talk to Evan Mia. Uh, Evan Mia runs EvanMia.com, or Evan Mia Kawa is uh, his full name. Uh, Evan uh, is a, a data scientist. He is uh, one of the uh, more influential uh, data analytics people in college basketball right now. Uh, Probably most well-known for creating what's called the Bayesian Performance Rating, which is uh, shortened to BPR. Uh, We have used BPR in our own uh, writing at Rockham Nation. Uh, So I thought what would be good for for us, good for you, is to uh, to reach out to Evan and see if he would be interested in coming on our podcast uh, and talking uh, to us, explaining BPR, uh, what he thinks about college basketball and analytics and all that kind of stuff. It's really an interesting uh, conversation. So without any further ado, Mr. Evan Miyakawa. And I would like to welcome in uh, Evan Miyakawa. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Evan Mia. Uh, you can find his website, uh, evanmia.com. Uh, one of the... Uh, like premier uh, basketball data people on on uh, on the web is is that is that fair to you, Evan? Yeah, I would I would say that's probably <laughs> fair at this point, <laughs> but it's nice. definitely a great honor to be in that category for sure. Well, yeah, I, I think you know when when people obviously when people talk about like specifically college basketball analytics, uh, Ken Palm is probably the one who's referenced the most. Uh, you know, but I, I think like you and, and Torvik and, and, uh, and Haslam are guys who are, uh, really kind of pushing, uh, the envelope and doing different things that Ken isn't doing. Um, and so I think it's like, it's kind of like, it's becoming a little bit of like this fun party <laughs> of, uh, of, of, you know, college basketball analytics. And I, I personally love it because I think it, it does advance the conversation. Uh, so for people who are, at least a little bit unfamiliar with uh, your work. You do have your uh, your website, uh, and I think the thing that you are perhaps most known for uh, is this this thing called the BPR. Uh, we've used it on our own, on our own uh, writing and 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 referencing you know BPR and exactly uh, what it is. Um, we've tried to explain it, but how would you explain BPR to to the listeners? Yeah, uh, BPR stands for Bayesian Performance Rating. It's a 
player metric that I created back in uh, 2020. And essentially the idea behind BPR is we're trying to measure overall player impact, value, contribution, however you want to call it, towards winning a game. There are lots of different ways to evaluate how good a player is. And the first thing that we'll typically do is looking at, you know, traditional player stats, like how many points per game do you score? Do you get a lot of rebounds? Do you make plays for the people through assists? And that's definitely a great starting point. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to put together a roster of guys who are going to lead your team to wins, you don't necessarily care as much about is this player scoring 20 points per game? What you care more about is when this player is on the floor, are we performing better? So the ultimate aim of Bayesian performance rating BPR is to try and as best we can quantify when this player is on the court, how much of an impact do they have on the game? And that can both be highlighting players who are, uh, you know, stat stuffers who are primary scorers, but it can also highlight guys who maybe don't get as many individual stats, but when they're on the floor, they make a huge difference. And so there's a, a combination of a couple different things that are involved in calculating BPR. Um, one is a, using traditional box score stats. You know, a player who averages 20 points per game is probably going to be better than a player who averages one point per game. That's information that's helpful. So that's that's a part of BPR. There's also a little bit of a historical element to it. So especially when a season starts, instead of just assuming everyone is the same skill level, you have a bit of a um, a preseason prior based on a player's previous history with that team. If they played college basketball before or even um, if they're a younger player or haven't played any college basketball at all, they're a freshman. We can utilize some information from high school recruiting profiles as well to give us an idea of how good those players are. All that information gets um, put together. Um, but then a final part of this is actually when a player is on the floor, how well is the team performing when they're on the court and it adjusts for the strength of all other players on the court for every possession that a player plays. And so it can really um, highlight guys who, when they're on the floor, kind of regardless of whether they're scoring a lot or a little, is the team playing better on their floor? And typically the guys who are, you know, the highest impact players are having that sort of um, they're changing the game when they're on the floor and you can see that difference there. So all of those different components are kind of all swirling around and involved to kind of get this overall player value metric. How good is this player when he's on the court offensively, defensively? And then you can kind of sum, sum it up into one big number for, you know, overall yeah, so uh, you know, I told you off air like a, a few years ago. I, you know, made a little bit of an effort to try to do something similar to this, and came way uh, came up way short. Uh, and so, like, as soon as because uh, I, I believe more or less you're kind of the first guy to you know at, at least kind of put a number on this thing. And uh, and so I'm wondering, like, while you were working on this, what were some of the, like the biggest challenges that you sort of ran into when it came to the, the BPR? Yeah, so I I would say that I'm the first person to um, make a big deal about doing this at the college basketball level. There are a couple other people who I've seen make similar types of models for college basketball, but they're not quite as well known. Uh, but this idea of um, trying to base player value on how well a team plays around the court and adjusting for the strength of all other players. 
This general type of metric is called adjusted plus minus, and this has actually been around in the NBA since the early 2000s. Um, when I created BPR, I actually did not know that adjusted plus minus existed. So in my mind, I was creating something that had never been done before. I had this novel idea about, oh, well, if, if we are trying to quantify player value, let's just look at the end result. Is a team performing better in terms of per possession efficiency when players on the court versus when they're not? And you have all of these different adjustments that you make for quality of teammates, quality of opponents. And so I initially just made it without considering anything like box stats or prior historical info, just to see if there was some signal on this data. And it turned out that there was. And then as I started kind of making this model better, um, accounting for more information that made it more accurate, especially for guys, it's a little bit harder to quantify how good they are. I then realized that this has actually been this type of modeling has been a thing in the NBA for a bit. But one of the things that makes college basketball very unique is there are so many more uh, problems to solve because you have 350 plus teams and they're all across the board in terms of skill level. So the adjusting for opponent strength thing is actually a really big deal. And furthermore, you have way less sample size than you do in the NBA. In the NBA, there's 30 teams. They're all relatively the same strength. Uh, you're not having teams predicted to beat another team by 40 points like you might have in some high major versus low major games in college basketball. And there's every team plays every other team at some point. So there's a lot of cross pollination there. You get a lot of signal from seeing players play against pretty much everybody in college basketball. That's not the case, both for teams and for players. So it's a, it's a very different exercise in my opinion, and really requires some, you know, careful handling of certain things. Yeah. It's, it's basically, you know, akin to trying to figure out like college modeling, if it were, you know, just like the big 10 and the sec playing each other, uh, you know, versus, you know, having to worry about like the America East. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So kind of looking uh, at this like next season. So this upcoming season, we still got a few months. Um, so what kind of, you know, what players and teams are you kind of, uh, you know, looking for as far as what you think and what BPR is also kind of saying as who had like the biggest offseason upgrades? One of the fun parts about BPR is that it does lead to, I would say, in my you know somewhat professional opinion, fairly accurate estimates of a team's roster strength going into the preseason. Um, I haven't officially calculated these preseason projections for players and teams yet. That'll be released in October sometime, I think, once rosters are finalized. So I don't have a master list yet of where all the teams are going to rank in terms of my preseason ratings or where all the players are going to rank. Um, but even just looking at, um, you know, some of the stuff that we've seen this offseason, both in terms of recruiting, transfers, players able to retain players from last year, we're already kind of getting a little bit of an idea of the teams that are going to be in a really good spot. And uh, one of the things that I found is that, especially early on in the season, a lot of the team ratings and game predictions that I'm doing are end up performing better than other models that are out there. And in a lot of cases, better than Vegas projections, because I think these player impact based um, uh, roster evaluations are more accurate than what most people are using in terms of it from a data perspective. Um, and so if you're an informed human who has access to this kind of stuff, you can use that information along with your own, you know, personal knowledge and get a pretty accurate idea of, 
or I would say pretty accurate, more accurate than most uh, in terms of an idea of how good these teams are. So looking at those things, I think the the most interesting thing about these uh, preseason projections is that they mainly predict how effective a player is going to be when they're on the court. But there is an unanswered question in terms of how much they're going to play. Because you have some teams who have players who are really effective when they're on the court, but they may or may not play as much as they should to fully utilize that value. So, and then you have cases of players who were really efficient in a smaller sample size in a previous season who then have a larger role the next season. And there's um, a question of, will they be able to perform at that same rate? So for example, last year, Zach Eady was one of those guys where the season before he was splitting time with Travion Williams. When he was on the court, his BPR was great, but there was a question of, okay, now that he's going to be the main person in this, this team, when his usage goes up, is he going to be able to maintain that? And the, the answer was yes, uh, but that's not always the case for everybody. So an interesting one this year is Donovan Klingon. Very similar story to Zach Eady the year before in that he uh, came off the bench for UConn, but when he was on the floor, both from an individual stats standpoint, but also in terms of how well UConn played when he was on the court, it was incredible. He had an amazing uh, efficiency rating there. And so he's going to be one of the top projected players for this upcoming season in terms of BPR. But he's going to have a larger role in this team than he did last year. So there is a question of either will they play him as much as they should to utilize that value or B, if they do, will that um, efficiency kind of tail off as he has to have a larger load? Well, and I think this kind of uh, naturally leads me into, uh, you know, something that and and why I think your your rating system is is maybe a little bit more valuable in today's college basketball game is because of how prevalent the transport portal uh, has become. And so trying to project, uh, you know, transfers who are coming from, you know, low to mid majors and are, are looking to slot into to high majors, like I, I, you know, I think a good example uh, in this case, you know, for Missouri, obviously, and we're, we're going to talk about Connor Van over here in a little bit, but uh, you know, I'm thinking more of like an Aaron Estrada, uh, you know, a guy who was a very productive point guard at a, at sort of like that mid to low major level, uh, and now he's stepping up in onto an Alabama roster where, you know, like the the competition is going to be a lot stiffer the the uh the defenses are going to be better the length at the rim is going to be a lot tougher uh and so you know how how exactly you know do these models kind of like adjust for uh for guys that are sort of making you know moderate or even you know bigger jumps that is one of the challenges with the transfer portal is specifically evaluating guys who are dramatically changing the strength of their conference and the regular um, you know, uh, the level of the teams that they're going to play against. The idea behind BPR is that it is complete. It completely removes the context for the teammates that a player is playing with and the teams against it completely removes that context and just says, if this player was put on a roster of D one average players against D one average players, how well would the team perform? That's essentially what it's trying to do. And so the nice thing about that is when I end up making these, a transfer portal projections that are largely based on saying based on the impact that players had in previous seasons, kind of agnostic of what team they end up on, how good is this transfer going to do now in a lot of cases the the team context does matter and there's more uncertainty for players who are changing from say like a lower mid-major team to a high major team. 
but by and large, the uh, these projections are taking that into account. And so when you see a guy like, say, Hunter Dickinson, number one, but then you see another guy in the top 10 who's from a mid or low major school, um, it's saying that it, if we level the playing field and these guys could go to any school, this is still roughly how at least they're projected to um, rank. Of course, team fits important and things like that. Um, but it does account for those things. And so when you're looking at it from a like a high major perspective, um, ideally, you look at that list and say, hey, regardless of how good the team this guy came from, this is roughly how good they're going to be on our team if we were to get them. Well, and I, so I think that actually uh, sets up kind of my next question, which I uh, I wanted to kind of point out that that last year, uh, your projections were one of the few that was really kind of high on Missouri's draft class or draft <laughs> uh, transfer class. Um, you know, Dennis Gates last season imported a lot of guys from from you know mid to low majors. Uh, he basically imported you know like half of his Cleveland State roster, uh, and very clearly it worked. Um, you know, I think Missouri was one of the surprise teams. I think there's a lot of Missouri fans who tell you that they you know totally saw what was coming. Uh, they're lying to you. Like I think even the most optimistic of us, like we were just we'd have been happy with like you know 500 in league play and. And a few games over 500 overall, uh, you know, landing like a, a a four seed in the SEC tournament was not something that anybody thought was going to happen. Uh, but but your projections really really liked the transfer class, uh, and so I think for those of us who you know were a little more positive about you know potential outcomes, like we were pointing to it, it's like hey, like like this is something that says Missouri could be pretty good. So what do you think like differentiated? Uh, what like, you know, BPR and what your projections saw versus maybe some others. Yeah, my, my ratings are definitely going to be unique from other common transfer portal ones out there, like, you know, 27, 24, seven sports or something, partly because it's, it's purely based on college performance. There's not any like, um, professional expert opinion involved based on, did you like a guy on tape? Um, so in that way, it's, it's, it's the most unbiased source and it, it does try and mix, a combination of has a guy performed well in college, but also does he have untapped potential based on his high school recruiting rankings? So there are a lot of guys who may not have performed that well in a first season or two of college, but they were a four or five star um, high school recruit. And so there's still that potential that's someone untapped. And that's a huge part of making these projections, especially for younger players. So from the way that my model has evaluated Missouri's transfer work last summer and this summer, it's both been very impressive. Uh, last summer, I think they ended up having, in terms of rating how good their incoming transfer class was in 2022, it was third in the country. And this year right now, it's at eight and third overall this year in terms of like outgoings and incomings. Um, so very clearly a priority for Dennis Gates and the staff. Um, and the, the fun part about the transfer class last year was that all of these guys were two to three star high school prospects. Like you weren't getting, um, you know, guys who were highly regarded out of high school and arguably the most hyped player in Isaiah Mosley didn't actually do that much for the team last year. Right. And the transfer class was still extremely uh, effective. I think um, in terms of my BPR metric, four of the top five on Missouri last year were from that transfer class which is incredible. Um, so I think 
for for different reasons, whether it's um, guys who had were kind of had untapped potential in terms of their individual efficiency numbers um, from their previous schools or we're just having a really good on-court impact for the teams that they played for previously. The model was picking up on those things and saying, this is going to translate well, even going to a higher level in the SEC. And for the most part, that turned out to be true. Yeah, and and what's interesting is, uh, you know, we have guys on our staff, you know, uh, Matt Harris specifically, who just loves to like chew through, uh, you know, game film and and watch a lot of film. And and I think what what... BPR did was it picked up on a lot of things that he saw, which is, you know, like why did Demoy Hodge translate so well to the SEC? It's well because even at Cleveland State, Demoy Hodge wasn't doing a lot of like ISOs. He wasn't doing pick and rolls. He was catch and shoot. He was getting out in the open floor, and those things translate. Uh, you know, and so, uh, and plus when you consider the fact that, you know, he is also a, a, a defensive, uh, you know, menace and generates a lot of steals, like that's also, you know, a pretty, pretty valuable, um, statistic for, for somebody like that. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, I was just oh, going to say, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I think that my transfer, um, portal projections have that others don't is that there's more of an emphasis on defense. Um, most people, when they're looking at transfers, care about offensive production. It's also easier to measure that through individual box stats. But there is, I don't want to say there's an equal emphasis on defense, but there's definitely a higher emphasis on defense in my model compared to most other ranking lists that are out there, partly because I actually make more of an attempt to measure that. And so, yeah, Demoy Hodge was one of those guys who had a pretty good defensive um, projected impact coming into the season as a transfer last year. And that's part of why, you know, he was evaluated as like a top 50 available transfer in the country last year. So how do you uh, measure defense? I like, I think like that's probably one of like the biggest things that it, makes something like BPR so much of a challenge is, is a lot of defense tends to be subjective. And uh, I, I don't think I've told you this, but I've coached, uh, at the high school level, uh, and, and I've spent my uh, fair amount of time watching film and coaching defense. And there's a lot of lot to defense that is it's hard to quantify because you don't necessarily always know what coaches are trying to get their players to do. And so, you know, like uh, like I would say, off the ball, Demoy Hodge is one of the most disruptive defenders uh, that Missouri's had. He's also like terrible at closeouts and and not that great at the point of attack. So it's just it's one of these things where like he 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 does produce a lot of steals. He is very disruptive. He gets his hands in a lot in in the cookie jar a lot and and is able to kind of knock the ball loose. Uh, so like how do you go about sort of making that all work in the mix? Yeah, there's never I don't think there's ever going to be a good box score or play-by-play based metric that's going to really like make everyone happy with ranking defensive players like it's just going to be impossible it's there's so much more that has to be evaluated beyond just what is logged in a a play-by-play you know what i mean um but there in my attempt to do it through bpr um essentially one of the first things i do is i see how much signal is there in terms of the individual stats we can measure like defensive rebounds blocks steals things like that, how much signal is is in these stats in then predicting actual on-court defensive performance. And so that sort of serves as a somewhat of a baseline for defensive performance. But there are plenty of guys who 
are either, you know, get lots of steals and blocks per game, but what the those stats don't show is that they're getting blown by every third play and, you know, leading to bad performance or vice versa. Guys who their point there's the defensive scheme that they're running doesn't have that guy, you know, disrupting and getting steals, but he's always doing exactly what's needed and, you know, makes it tough for the offense to get good shots. And so there still is a heavy component in the model that relies on saying when this guy is on the floor defensively, how is he affecting the team's defensive performance? Of course, adjusting for other teammates that he's with, adjusting for other players that he's playing against. So if a guy is always put in to defend the other team's star player, he's going to get credit for that versus if a guy is always on defense at the end of a game when it's in garbage time and the other team's not really trying that hard, like, you know, those things matter. Um, but I think the other thing, too, is that there's so much about defensive evaluation that's based on your own, you know, professional eye test. And so what people look for in, say, a defensive player of the year candidate, like, say, an athletic ball hawk or someone who just looks really shifty on defense, um, there's sort of an assumption that these things lead to good defense, but it doesn't tell the full picture of everything else that's involved with that player. And so sometimes the guys who make the defensive highlights because of their best moments, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily tell a full story. So it can be kind of difficult there. No, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I definitely uh, commend you for, uh, at, at the very least, just making the effort because it is, it is really difficult. Um, and even watching films, sometimes you're not entirely sure <laughs> like, who's doing the right thing. Um, so uh, kind of moving on to uh, this uh, upcoming season. Uh, one guy that I wanted to talk about specifically was Connor Vanover. And the reason is, is uh, your ratings love him, uh, quite frankly. Uh, when you when you look at the transfer portal rankings, uh, I don't think a lot of people would expect uh, a guy, you know, playing center at Oral Roberts would be, I want to say, what was he, 12th? Did I have that right? Yeah, I have to check you somewhere. Yep, yep, 12th. Um, oh, that's that's st- straight from memory, too. So that's pretty good. Um, nice job. So <laughs> my, my question is quite simply, like, why does BPR like Connor Vanover so much? Yeah, so Connor asked me to just bump his rating up, so I did. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so I actually love Connor Vanover. He was a transfer gem last summer when he um, was leaving Arkansas. And uh, I actually put out an article out a couple months ago talking about last summer's um, transfer gems in terms of how my model evaluated certain players that were undervalued on the market and then how they ended up performing. And he was a prime example of a um, a player who you know didn't play very much and was kind of disregarded, but there were a lot from an analytical standpoint. There were a lot of things that pointed to him being able to be a really effective player, even if he was underutilized at Arkansas. So he only played 15 games at Arkansas his final season, less than four points per game. But from the limited minutes that he played, his uh, block stats pointed to him being a, a really good rim protector. His on off numbers indicated that he wouldn't be an offensive liability. And so um, Paul Mills at Oral Roberts found him and got him. And um, I, I have a relationship with with Coach Mills and I, I know that he uses my my stuff. So I'm sure that probably helped a little bit with him making that evaluation. But he ended up preseason being the best incoming transfer in the Summit League. And that ended up leading to him being the defensive player of the year in the conference. He averaged over three blocks a game, seven rebounds a game. And he was also, you know, despite being a really 
thin, tall guy was able to shoot over 30% from three on about four attempts per game. And he also finished at the rim well. So he had a really good year uh, from an analytical standpoint. I think he finished sixth amongst all transfers in BPR for last year, which is really good. So, you know, all those things kind of point to, um, you know, him being able to translate at a higher level. Now, obviously, he has played in the SEC before. And Arkansas, who, you know, typically has very loaded teams, didn't end up using him that much. So there's definitely a question there. And certainly he's one of the most unique players in the portal in terms of his size, in terms of his role. Um, so there, there could be a little bit more uncertainty there in terms of if he's going to live up to this projection or not. But certainly in terms of trying to predict the the mean outcome for him, it's pretty high. Yeah, and I, I would also kind of add to that, like, I think – Eric Musselman, you know, tends to have, I mean, like you could look at who he imported, you know, this year and, um, you know, he, he tends to really like, uh, very athletic, uh, types and, and, you know, Vanover is, is not the most mobile, uh, of bigs. Um, you know, he is one of those, like those center types that what you're going to do is you're going to use him for pick and pops and you're going to use him for rim protection. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, Dennis Gates has sort of shown that he's much more willing to sort of find a, you know, that that role for the guy that he thinks he's going to be best in and just trying to make sure that he's he's hammered as much and as often into that role as as, as possible. Um, so are there any other uh, uh, Missouri transfers that that you're you're quite fond of as far as the, the BPR is concerned? Let me uh, let me check on that list real quick here. Um, I'm thinking mainly me, John John Tanji is a guy that we like a lot. Uh, yeah, Tamar Bates is a Kansas City kid who I think a lot of Mizzou fans are excited about. Yeah, yeah. The other, I mean, all of their transfers are in the top uh, 250 nationally um, in terms of my my transfers, which is is very good uh, com- considering the fact that there's. 1600 transfers, <laughs> uh, who transferred this year. Um, so yeah, one of the things that I'm, I'm always curious about when a team is putting their, their transfer class together is there's always players who can be rated really highly, but then a couple others who have a really low rating, but there's a, an understanding that they're going to play significant minutes for that team. And that's something I'm always concerned about is, um, and I think an example of this might be like West Virginia, um, they have some really good players coming in, but they also have a, at least until the Bob Huggins things, the stuff happened players like, um, Jose Perez, who was the, um, conference player of the year at Manhattan had to sit out a year. Uh, he had a very low transfer rating, but he was supposed to be their starting shooting guard or something like that. And as much as it is important to get really good transfers, it's also important to not get guys who aren't going to be good and are going to demand a big role. And I, that's not going to be a problem for Missouri this year. I don't think so. That's, that's also a promising sign. So, well, yeah, that is good. And, and and yeah, Jose Perez is a guy who uh, we've had plenty of internal conversations about mainly because, you know, he was a very high usage uh, and uh, guy at Manhattan and not particularly uh, efficient with a lot, a lot of those, uh, those possessions. Um, so, uh, the, the last thing that I kind of want to, you know, get into here is, is mainly about kind of analytics in general. Um, like I said earlier, like, you know, you're part of, uh, like a, a group of people who I think 
are and it's starting to reach more and more into like the general uh college basketball fandom where you know not just uh, you know people aren't just referencing ken palm anymore like you hear on uh even you know like you know gary Parrish and matt norlando and matt norlander for example on their podcast talk about you talk about torvik um you know there is a lot more you know respect around analytics um so how do you think analytics has impacted college basketball uh fandom but also college basketball coaching um because i think as coaches have have sort of moved into these models uh you know where now these guys have um you know just guys on staff who will just crunch numbers uh, but also like the amount of like fan interest in these things as well. Yeah, I'll start with the fan side. This is part of why I think college basketball is my favorite sport, not just from a fan consumption perspective, but also from a data intrigue perspective, because it is the only major sport, professional or college that I know of where a team's um, performance on a season is largely dictated by a set of humans who sit in a room and decide where you should be and not based on your win loss column. And so because of that, as college basketball fans, we have started to become conditioned to thinking about these metrics and stats that quantify team performance as an indication of is our team that you're cheering for going to make the tournament or not. You know, even in college football, there is a subjective manner to it, but it only ends up mattering for, you know, say eight teams a year or something like that. And, you know, the rest of the team, you just, you play a bowl game. Whereas in college basketball, there are 68 teams that get into a tournament. Almost all of them, uh, you know, their placement is all subjective, even if they've earned that right by winning their conference tournament. And so because of that, we have a much more of a natural need for these kinds of things to quantify team performance, to quantify resumes. And so as college basketball fans, fans, I think we've already become conditioned to thinking about these kinds of things. And even within the last couple of years, as the most current version of the metrics that the selection committee is using has become common knowledge, it's it's very common discussion now to talk about quad one wins and quad two losses. Like what it's what is that construct? <laughs> it's just something that we've kind of decided is important for evaluating if this team is going to get over this team because there's one more quad one win. Right. So I, that's why I love it. And I think the, that part of it makes it really unique and already makes fans receptive to stuff that then goes more into the nat, the next natural step, which is evaluating players, evaluating lineup performance and things like that. So that's part of why I think it's so fun to work in this space because there's already an appetite and a need for it. And so people are already conditioned to kind of using that in their, their everyday language, talking about college basketball so I think it makes it way easier for then people to just kind of continue down that path and, you know, ingest all the stuff that that I work on. So I love that part. In terms of the coaching thing, the other part of why I love college athletics is because unlike at the professional level, so my my day job, I also work in data science doing NBA analytics. And so I work directly with NBA teams. Um, it's, it's different from my website, but um, a very somewhat similar type of role. But a difference there is that in NBA circles, every single team has a staff of research and development folks who are very analytically savvy. And so in order for you to provide something that they don't have before, it has to be very cutting edge. 
very cutting edge. And even then, there's still only a niche audience of people who are going to use it, as in two to three people on a certain team who hopefully can find some value in it and maybe tell it to one coach who maybe will use it, maybe. And (laughs) whereas in college (laughs) basketball, uh, coaching staffs are smaller, and especially for teams that don't have a big budget, which is a majority of the teams in D1 basketball, there are way more opportunities for something like an analytics website to provide something extra that they don't have um, and that they they don't have the manpower to invest in internally. And so that's why a lot of coaches have um, started to dig into my stuff is because they're saying, hey, I'm trying to gain an edge any way that I can. My calendar is crazy. And so if there's something that I can glean in 15 minutes from looking at, you know, how my players are performing in BPR or certain players in the portal based on how they're projected or optimizing lineups or anything like that. Um, that's a value add for them. And so that's part of why there's an appetite for it out there among coaching staffs as well. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we were, uh, we were sort of banging the drum, uh, for a long time, you know, Missouri was kind of an underperforming program, uh, for a lot of years. And one of the things that we kept saying is like, they need to invest in the program. Uh, they need to actually spend some money on, on, on all these things that everyone kept pointing to like the head coaching salary and like, look, they're paying him this much. I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't have a support staff. He doesn't have, uh, you know, like if you look at some of the, you know, the best teams, like they've got, you know, 10, 12 people, uh, who are just on staff that are not coaches. Uh, and so it's just like, like, I think, when you look at at least you know this is obviously high major and and you know the low majors are are going to be a different say but I, I I do think that you know you're seeing much more of this investment at the high major level where uh, you know even if it's uh, you know not necessarily like a data scientist or somebody like that they are finding people uh, you know who will whose job it's going to be to essentially just you know look at data and try to figure out those advantages and, and hopefully they're, they're using, uh, you and, and your stuff. <laughs> um, well, so, uh, Evan, that's all that I have for you. We actually went a little over that, uh, I, I had hoped to kind of keep you for only about 30 minutes. We're a little bit over that. Uh, so before we get out of here, is there anything that you need to, uh, plug? I'm going to throw up your website right here. Uh, so people can, can go subscribe and, and send their, their dollars your way. But, uh, anything else you want to plug? Yeah. The main thing is just my website. Um, you know, especially once, uh, preseason projections are up, it'll start to become really active there. And all of the player metrics, team metrics, lineup performance stuff, game predictions, got all those things. They update every day as results come in. Um, and I try and do a good job of, Um, having different levels of granularity based on if you're kind of a casual fan or someone who really likes to get in the weeds. So there's kind of something for everyone there. And I'm pretty much only active on or Twitter or whatever we call it nowadays. Um, But you can find me there as well uh, at Evan Mia. (laughs) Uh, That's that's good to know. And you are a good follow. You always always share helpful stuff with with us when it comes up. So I appreciate that. And I I am fully in the weeds in your website. So I'm really excited for this forthcoming uh, year and getting to like some of your scouting reports and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So everybody, uh, go subscribe to Evan's site. Evan, thank you so much for, for joining me. Uh, and who knows, maybe we'll, we'll try to do this again in, in, in the near future, but, but thanks for joining me this time. 
Absolutely. I'd like to thank again, uh, Mr. Miyakawa, Evan, um, thank you for, for joining us. That was a really, really enlightening interview. A uh, lot of really good information. Um, make sure that you are following him on X uh, slash twitter.com uh, at Evan Mia there. Uh, and really, if you head over to evanmia.com, um, similar to Ken Palm, you can sort of watch the page um, in, in, a, in a sort of basic form, um, you know, at, at no cost. But if you subscribe, you get uh, some additional features and, and there's a couple different tiers. Um, I would recommend the, the biggest tier because some of the, the scouting and lineup data is really, really fascinating. Um, I started subscribing just this past year and I think that the subscription is worth it. Uh, so um, head over to evanmedia.com and give them a subscription. Uh, that's going to do it for this interview. If you enjoyed this uh, video or this podcast, make sure that you are subscribed to our YouTube channel. Um, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast feed as well. The more people that we have subscribed, the better these things tend to uh, to go. And, and, and that's kind of what we're trying to reach a big audience. So thank you all for tuning in. And uh, we will be back with either more interviews or possibly more dive cuts or more basketball talk coming soon. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.